All right. I don't even know what to say at o- about OPEC at this point. So somebody talk. I mean, what are we? Are we? Are we OPEC? kicking off? Sure. What? Whatever. All right. Um, <clears throat> you know, I had an interesting meeting today. All right. Um, you know, I've, I've, I'm I'm uh, I'm a co-founder of a technology that takes ammonia and generates heat and hydrogen. Would you say you're the captain? That's right, captain. So I met with a uh, Houston's probably most prestigious. Uh, brewery today, the founder, uh, and uh, we talked to him about decarbonization, what he's trying to do. Number one, I don't know if you've ever had a chance. Have you ever met Brock Wagner at yeah, St. Arnold's? You we, know him, we right? We went to Rice together. I mean, <clears throat> we weren't there at the same time, but the Rice alumni world's so small. It makes so much sense why he is number one successful, but he sort of epitomizes Houston, like not um, not arrogant. Um, you know, not political per se, uh, all community driven, but we talked about, we talked to him about his decarbonization goals and it's real interesting what he said. He said, you know, honestly, our customers don't care. There's some people that actually care about the environment, of course, but when it comes to buying stuff, what they actually purchase is a different decision. And they do care about decarbonization as a business. He would love to, but it's so expensive that he's like, until you can compete against low energy prices, I can't, as a business, you know, lose margin and potentially put himself out of business by buying solar or buying ammonia and creating heat. He doesn't, I mean, he uses natural gas and et cetera. But I was super impressed by his humility um, and kind of the view of a lot of businesses about the true nature of decarbonizing, of decarbonizing their own business. It's got to make financial sense or they can't do it. Or it's got to be part of your marketing dollars. You know, I mean, if you can get bang for your buck on the marketing front, because true, it, it, you know, if, if you view it as part of marketing expenses and that helps drive customer decision and you're right, beer, I would never give it a second thought whether my beer company decarbonized or not, you know. It's kind of key. Yeah. So I think we all care about the environment, but your your point is, is where in that hierarchy or ability to care mm-hmm. falls, right? And the depolitiz- depolitization of the terminology that we're, we're using in this debate, you know, I've advocated for, let's focus on what's really the problem here, and that's pollution. I think everyone's in favor of mitigating, eliminating pollution. Question is, do you have the resources, the time, the ability to do something about it? And so um, you also bring up another point, which I think is larger and more fundamental to what we talked about last week in, in regards to things like the kind of the radical shifts that we've seen in a couple of recent elections in Argentina and the Netherlands is that you put too much kind of real world pressure on the electorate and consumers, they're going to vote in their self-interest. Right. And, and so you can't, you can't burden me indefinitely with cost on some collective ideal that <clears throat> doesn't even make my hierarchy of, of attention or need on a daily basis. And I think where we've talked about this some too, that's going to be the surprising second and third level effects is the SEC mandating 
emissions. We're going to see Amazon vans running around causing a lot of emissions. Right. You know, I think it's going to be surprising if we have a semi-educated effort to say, hey, look at scope one, scope two in oil and gas. Actually, not that big. Now let's look at it, you know, Amazon, et cetera. You're going to see where these emissions really are coming from. And I I think it's going to wind up being a positive because to your point, market's going to educate to that. Hey, you don't want three vans showing up at your house? You're going to have to live with less convenience. You're going to have to start planning, et cetera. And some people do that and some people just won't. And and the notion that the producers, processors, transporters, refiners of the products that are in focus here can somehow dictate or control ultimate consumer Mm -hmm. behavior, I think for all but the most extreme and extremely invested in an increasingly irrational point of view is the scope three decision is up to the final consumer. As well, I always tell my kids, you want to get rid of oil and gas, just stop using it. It's up to you. I mean, I was Make with the choice. one of our uh, loyal listeners this weekend and he was like, man, I didn't realize because we called it months ago. He's like, he was considering buying an EV, but the reason he didn't pull the trigger was because of EV charging. And the ability to charge within the city of Houston and the difficulty of charging. Um, And I was thinking about this because we've talked about this sort of Orwellian view of electrifying the world. That's where, you know, like Germany is about to go in this sort of dictated, the grid, the German grid has said, hey, we don't have enough, we can't electrify everything. And we're going to have to start controlling who gets, who uses electricity or not. So if if my house runs on electric heat pumps, if my house if I run on electric vehicle, I might not have the energy. I not I might not be able to fill it up when I need it because the government or the grid says, "Hey, we don't have enough to give you." That's a real concern, um, right? It yeah, is, I mean, and you saw it on display. I don't know who went through the pain and brain damage to watch the watch what I call the governor's debate between DeSantis and Newsom. And one of the points that DeSantis tried to score was last year the um, notice to consumers not to charge their EVs during kind of high demand and stress periods on the grid in California. Yet we're legislating by 2035 that all new vehicles will be battery electric in, in far beyond the scope of the show today. We've, talked about the grid ad nauseum and all the dynamics around that, but that's really what it's about. And, you know, there's <clears throat> tremendous cost associated at all points along the way that are really coming into focus and coming to a head this week and next year at, uh, at COP28. Did you want to hit OPEC real quick? No, hit, hit, hit COP because I don't even know what to say. I mean, <laughs> I think we said it best last week when it was like, this is NAEP. Everybody shows up. I, I think that I think the one way to say this is COP twenty eight is to show the airplanes in Germany that were frozen in the the private jets that couldn't get to COP twenty eight because their jets were frozen because they were going to a global warming conference. That to me summarizes COP twenty eight. But let's give I, her. I a thought mark. I thought they were mimicking just stop oil by sticking themselves to a hard surface. <laughs> I like I like the one that said Chris, Christy didn't sit over the wing. <laughs> <laughs> 
COP twenty eight. I, c- I couldn't. Rem- I couldn't remember who that was. Well, there's a there's a lot to unpack around COP twenty eight, and today's OPEC commentary addresses some of that. So I, I just want to hit that OPEC topic real yeah, quick. Yeah, go ahead. The Saudi minister is out after a few days of sloppy trading and weakness in crude in the face or in the aftermath of the OPEC cuts, saying that he strongly believes that 2.2 million barrels of cuts will be delivered. It will be enough to offset normal Q1 inventory builds and that they're starting to see um, signs of improved demand. So they're taking the fight to the market in, in an effort to put some resilience under, under the crude market. And so this is all in and around COP28. We, we can start there with, with the particular issue. And I think one of the things that has come to the fore in the last couple of days and in, in discussions and some of the news that's hey, being- Mark, re- real quick before we leave OPEC, because this is out there, and I have no idea how to handicap this one because uh, MBS is eh, crazier than the past. But, I mean- Price war from the Saudis, that's ridiculous, right? That's not happening. Is I, was, it? I was talking about, so the third point that I had here in the OPEC segment was how much is Saudi and OPEC going to tolerate because of the resilience that and the robustness that mm. U.S. production is showing. We're, we're looking at an exit to exit 23 over 22 of another 870,000 barrels a day, which coming into the year is a lot stronger than what people were initially predicting and that's against and there's a lag here but that's against a backdrop of oil directed grid count coming off about 20 percent since the end of september and continued at least perceived and on paper and not outspending cash flows and returning cash to shareholders capital discipline the point is is that something is going on at a fundamental level whether it's temporary i've heard the notion that the privates are propping up their assets for an eventual sale or boosting production because they know they're going to get two and a half times EBITDA. So the role, the role EBITDA. is coming. Yeah. 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 The role is coming. Just wait. But how long will the Saudis tolerate it? I think, from my own personal perspective, I think <clears> it's a, a a bit less. In fact, a lot less likely that we see a a repeat of Thanksgiving 2014 to punish kind of the market share interlopers that the U.S. was viewed to be at that time. Because of the dynamic of Russia being involved here, um, center to the conversation in OPEC. So this is interesting. So uh, Wednesday on Chuck Yates needs a job. Uh, My guest is Ted Cross of Novi Labs. And Novi Labs uses AI to forecast reserves, machine learning type stuff. And he's been digging into data kind of basin by basin. One, per well efficiency, greatness, metrics, whatever whatever you want to call it, in the DJ basin, still increasing. Now, his take is it's consolidation, and Chevron actually knows what they're doing, more efficiencies by owning bigger blocks, longer laterals, all that. So the DJ basin, per well, still getting better. He says... um, the Permian Basin's been off kind of like 10% the last couple of years. He sees flatter for longer. Mm. Other people are seeing big, bigger drop-offs in the Permian or predicting <clears throat> bigger drop-offs in the Permian. Uh, he and I kind of had a back and forth on that because I think 
what we've talked about on here is that you had Exxon and Chevron late to the game drilling in the Permian, and they were drilling with, in effect, best practices developed by others. So it kind of looks like there's this continued trajectory mm -hmm. up and then a breakover in the Permian when really it was just the. I actually told Ted to go run his data again without Chevron and Exxon Wells and see what it looks like. I think we've already experienced the bigger drop off in the Permian. Yep. But anyway, we were hypothesizing. <clears throat> but despite kind of sitting there talking about it, I still can't figure out why the, the, the United States continues to grow. It's just stunning. You got to keep an eye on it. Um, we, we've seen this movie before where productivity has been buoyant, if not improving. And it's, you know, the, the old, well, in times of stress, it's easy to, easier to high grade. And, and that's true. When, when, I, when I think about what Darren Woods said on the Pioneer merger call about, or at least uh, it, was, it was suggested that there is a fundamental, as much as doubling of productivity that's possible, now you've got the combined technical acumen of Pioneer and Exxon over what, a million acres in the Midland Basin and arguably mm. the best position in the Midland Basin. It's not everyone's, but as we've said before too, this industry is pretty good mm -hmm. at observing, copying, and applying effectively. <clears throat> I'm not saying the geology is not getting tougher. I just don't know what that intersection of technology and geology looks like. You're not, not going to take really bad rock and make it great, but you might take good rock and get it on the cusp of great. And I think what's got to be overlaying this, and I'm sure we could pull this data out, is drilling speeds must be continuing to increase because rig rates have not been, you know, normally we, the production bumps you're talking about, we usually can translate it back via V, the, the rig rate, how many rigs we got out there and all. I mean, we've been flat and, and to your point, declining since does, September. Does drilling rates really matter? to the ROI of a well over time or is it it's cost yeah i mean every, it, it's every it's it's not it's near the proportion the it's not near the proportion that completion costs are yeah it's a third okay. i bet it's a third to 40 percent of the cost of i think well it's one third day. two third yeah yeah is a good rule of thumb and but our my, listeners my our listeners who are drilling more wells these days and so we don't see an increase in rig count but we right. see more wells being I'd, I'd love for our listeners that do this for a living every day to actually because we're commenting critique dude how here, does I a think. listener get a hold of us besides i mean i get a lot of like shout outs indirectly how do we do it directly do we have a way for you can do comments on youtube underneath youtube okay. if you want to put quotes there i'm nimble fatty on twitter chuck yates on linkedin so pretty easy to find kirk coburn on us. twitter you can find me everywhere at w mark meyer on twitter W Mark Meyer. Yeah. You have to like when that are we was, gonna get a refract? When are we gonna change your name to Refract? That's yeah, the oldest good. guy in the room gets gets I thought you wanted to be T Bone. I'm I'm sidetracking forever will be there <laughs> Thanks go. to the late great Mike Fraser. Okay, so we so, uh, so, so the we lab, diverted you off of uh look, I I think the risk is lower, if not much lower, than it was in twenty fourteen, but don't kid yourself, the Saudis are paying attention to what's going on in the U S and I do think, you know, an 870,000 or an almost 900,000 barrel a day number out of what 
is perceived to be a fairly discipline, disciplined year on the surface should give you some pause. Now, um, as I mentioned earlier, I think, mm. I think the Russian involvement in the conversation and their absolute critical need for higher prices mm. to shore up their own domestic and, and war front um, situation is a consideration and a pressure point within the cartel mm. that you, don't, you didn't have then. And kind of one last thing, just while we're here, Rory Johnson came on the Chuck Job podcast, I don't know, a month or two ago. He says, you know, post-COVID, figuring out what demand is actually growing is a mm -hmm. little bit kind of hazy there because it used to be demand grows a million barrels a, a, a day per year. Mm -hmm. That's just what it did. Look back 20 years, it did that every year, except I think one year it was negative. It's pretty predictable. He said, given the gyrations we did, it's going to take us a little bit of time to really figure out how demand's growing, what is return of demand versus new demand, et cetera. So right. I hadn't really given that a lot of thought, but I think there's something real to that. Yeah, and the farther away we get from 2019, which is always the baseline, let, let's go back to 2019, which gives us an... Um, uncontaminated baseline of demand. What do the numbers look like today? I know Josh Young does quite a bit of Chinese air traffic um, in, right. in uh, air travel demand in, in, in China. Um, yeah. He tracks that pretty closely. Uh, how much farther away from 2019 can we get to figure out, well, we're still working out of the noise of, of COVID and, and that aftermath versus what, what is real <laughs> fundamental demand? Right. All right, so pick us back up. Sorry, I kept us on OPEC. Continue to roll into COP. Well, along along with uh, OPEC and the president of COP twenty eight, who is my new hero, <laughs> Mr. Algebra, who is basically said from a prior, I guess, interview with uh, prior to COP twenty eight, basically was not going to commit to or be put on the hook for a definitive fossil fuel phase out target date or timeline. Mm. And the OPEC secretariat came out this morning, I think in actually the voice of the Saudi oil minister, I saw a, a tweet from oil daily or oil price supporting that or reinforcing that point. And it brings up a larger, I think plot line in COP 28, which is there's a demand from, the opponents to have the industry commit to those hard dates and that there is a, a definitive and tangible phase out uh, ramp down of, of fossil fuels or hydrocarbons over a period of time. And what I think the voices that are largely coming from the oil and gas side are saying, we're not going to do that. And so we're going to continue to, to impress upon people the progress that's being made in terms of things like reducing flaring and uh, fugitive, fugitive, fugitive methane emission mm -hmm. elimination. And so the, there was this oil and gas development, uh, excuse me, oil and gas decarbonization charter that was signed by, I believe, 50 or 51 companies a few days ago that committed to certain and specific 
flaring and fugitive methane mm-hmm. emissions targets by 2030. Well, the other side is saying that's not enough. We need an associated commitment to phase down, phase out fossil fuels. Yeah. So, I mean, I, that's where I, I think I think the friction is rising because voices like Al Gore have cropped up in the middle of this, John Kerry as well, and so you're you're gonna I think you're going to see over the next week and a half, mm-hmm. which is I think the runtime of the remainder of COP28, mm-hmm. you're going to see no blinding insight here and escalation in the political rhetoric. Um, there was you know the notion I haven't seen anything official around it yet that the UN was going to call on the United States to cut down on its meat consumption um, because it's a big ag, livestock ag is a big contributor to the problem. And so we're, we're, we, we seem to be headed to more polarization than less. And it feels like the oil and gas community is taking the opportunity. My observation my assessment to play a little, play a little offense here. So, Just given well, given everything that's they, gone on, and they went one step further than what you've been talking about on offense. And granted, he he did it by himself. But the COP twenty eight president, my new my new hero, although I shouldn't say that because I don't know enough about him. Yeah, easy. There. He may he may have bad things in there, but algebra. Um, he he went so far as to say there's no scientific evidence that's saying. Getting going to net zero by 2050 will actually stop global climate change. Well, it's the 1.5 degrees. Yeah, right. stop the 1.5 degrees exactly. I mean, so I mean, bordering on mm-hmm. what the other side would call climate deniers. So not just a pushback <clears throat> of "Hey, we're doing our part, we're doing well enough." He actually said, mm, "Show me your show me your cards." So what do you do with this information? You've got, you know, from COP28, John Kerry saying. We being the United States, we've signed up to the phase out of unabated fossil fuels. We have signed up and we voted for it at the G7. So that's that's American what, what, politics. What he means, I think, primarily in that context was unabated coal, which is really kind of old news. And the fact that the Japanese reiterated this week that they're not going to sign up for that because of their okay resource deficit. And the dependency on things like imported coal and natural gas. Good. All right. At the same time, I mean, that's so, so that's, I mean, rhetoric. I mean, that's semantics in many Look, ways. Look, renewables have not had a good year. Not at all. From a capital or equity performance standpoint. So I think your the, job, your job review, the not acceptable, the, the yeah. not helpful. The, the strident tone is, is, natural when you feel like your back's a little bit more against the wall you've lost momentum on your side of the debate and so mm-hmm. now you have the coincidental or not so coincidental mere geographic location of this gathering and being led by you know a pretty prominent figure and voice in the oil and gas community and we're starting to see the stark differences in how we tackle this collective pollution problem, right? And the big, you know, the big, I think the big standoff here is one, wanting to get the oil and gas community to agree on a wholesale global basis that we're going to phase this stuff out and here's the defined timeline over which we're going to do it. And you're starting Mm -hmm. to see naturally pushback. I mean, you're going to- 
it's interesting because while COP28 is coming out, RWE, one of the uh, large utilities in Europe, says that they're warning that Europeans' gas security, there's there's basically what is their, Europe's gas security without a margin or buffer? We we talked last week about having 99%, like their, their storage is at 99% of gas, but a year, just a year ago, um, their their gas prices were at 300 um, euros per megawatt hour in August, which is huge. Now they're dropped down to around $43 or 43 uh, euros per, per megawatt hour. But there's a lot of risk here. And and right now their, their, um, their storage is about two and a half months worth. So if they go into a cold winter. He, well, he said no buffer. We have no, no buffer. buffer. And you, you asked the question last week, what happens with full storage in Europe? Does that, you know, does that lessen the severity if we have, I don't know, an El Nino winter that yeah. is an outlier from normal to the not so good cold side? And I think what you're seeing articulated by somebody who's in the hot seat, no pun intended, is that we don't have any margin for error here. So it really matters how the weather casino plays out for us. Um, this winter, the weather casino. I like that. Yeah, no, such an old term. <laughs> the um, no, and it's you go look at the. Uh, I'm planning to uh, potentially head to Europe, some part of Europe for. Uh, well, you know, they're, for, they're, but for not Christmas. part of the EU. The island that you have been <laughs> to is not part of Europe, is but it? But my whole point is, I am having to pack extra clothes because it's freezing. It's so, cold. It's really cold there right now. Now, that does not make an El Nino winter. It does not make Germany choose between industrial output and keeping grandmother alive. But at least right now, it's freezing. I, I think you heard my uh, the summer when I was in, in London and stayed my one night at the Duke's Hotel. My telltale on, on energy con conservation was that the heated towel racks in the hotel were turned off. Yeah, yeah. You, I remember that's, that. that. That's one of the great luxuries of, of staying <laughs> at the Duke's at, the at an English hotel. Number one. The martinis. The martinis number one. are number the one. Martinis. The martinis. And heat the super dry. hot towels are another. Yeah. But no, in all seriousness, I think uh, I think we're seeing a lot of these issues come to kind of a real time current head. And th and throw on all the electric vehicles sitting at dealerships. How many four thousand dealers? <laughs> sent a letter to Biden today saying, hey, got to stop, man. We can't keep producing these. So, I mean, again, part of the, uh, we're going to dictate to the market. And if the market doesn't show up, we're going to force something to a head. Yeah, I, it's, you know, <clears throat> it's, it's, it's unfortunate that politics distracts progress on these very important, in some cases, critical issues in debate resolution. But there's so much money invested in in political stakes across all points in this debate, and I just think, you know, we, we're we're going to see pushback as we saw and have talked about mm -hmm. in Argentina and the Netherlands. <clears throat> you saw a little bit of it in Ireland, which was for, I think, different reasons. But a lot of this is related to an ever increasing cost burden because of what's going on with the everyday citizens' average energy bills and, and the affordability and the degradation or the erosion of life and the standard of living.
And just to be fair, since since uh, climate activists always use 1850 as their starting point because it's the lowest temperatures we had in the last 10,000 years, for all of this debate we are having today and all of these metrics on number of cars sold and all that, <clears throat> we are going to use the passage of the IRA as the starting point for that. That's right, It hadn't been John. a good run. It hadn't been a good run for renewables, transition, et cetera. I mean, I was, I, I'm just thinking about, you know, my conversation this morning. It's like, if you're buying beer, number one, if you're buying, like we talked about, like, where's the growth? In fact, St. Arnold's has a pretty interesting, they're one of the only, like, uh, beer companies to actually grow over the last few years. But if you're a consumer, are, and you're actually paying more for craft beer because you're gonna, you're upgrading because you want a good quality experience. Are you going to pay an extra fifty cents a bottle or whatever it is because it's you know it's clean? I, people aren't going to people are not doing that, and so th that's something that that we need to be cognizant of because as things are moving to electrification. You got to have you have to have gas. You have other, you need other sources. You need energy security. So that's a common theme that you're starting to see even in the media that it, we're moving transitioning from clean to security, especially as we head into a cold winter. And I and I hope what happens for Brock because I like Brock a lot, and I was actually there the night he unveiled the um, the whatever the logo for St. Arnold's. Uh, he had. He had sketched it. We were at the last concert cafe downtown and we were there and he laid it out. Hey, what do you think about this? I just had an artist draw it. And it was old school, you know, pencils on uh, pencils on paper. Cause that guy that had to have been, I think I may have still been in college. So. This one. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. We'll but, send uh, that to no, the, I hope, uh, I hope, I hope Brock for Brock's sake. I think part of the issue with Brock saying my customers don't care about it is a lot of customers don't know that, uh, potentially manufacturing concerns pollute as well. I mean, right now the target's focused on oil and gas, period. Right. You know, and so which it'll is, be interesting Which is to the watch. input to all of that. Which is the input, but it'll be interesting to see those dynamics of, are we going to start, when we're starting to report our emissions, are we going to turn our- And in fairness to Brock, he cares. Yeah. He's no, running, he's, he's like, I've run the math. I keep running the math. Yeah, it never makes sense. And when I talk to customers, what I have found out is they'll tell me they want this, but they're not going to pay more for it. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And you, I mean, as a business owner, yeah. I mean, he's got employees that he wants to keep on the payroll. I, I forget how Jim Murchie put it. I I quoted him off of his LinkedIn post that consumer choice has got to be, you know, a, a main factor in in policy, and unless we're thinking about another framework or structure outside of a democratic system, then I think policymakers would be wise to heed that. That was part of the message. I, I want to Doug Sheridan with Energy Point, who I think is one of the top energy opinion makers on LinkedIn, <clears throat> which is where I read most of his stuff, was basically out this morning with a fairly long commentary on really what's at play here. And I've never thought about it or framed it this way, but basically contending that the reason behind the demand that the oil and gas industry or the fossil fuel industry more broadly 
commit to specific phase out timeline and targets <clears throat> is that when the chaos that ensues, when there's a scarcity of, I think what <clears throat> everyone believes is going to be critical to sustaining and, and, and thriving for a number of years, if not decades going forward, once that becomes problematically short and prices skyrocket and lower to middle class suffers a lot, that then the finger of blame can be, not only did you guys cause the problem, you caused this pain and suffering as well. That's basically, you know, it, it's, a, it's a brilliant maneuver if, if indeed this is the case. Right. To kind of hang your own self with the commitment to phase it out. And then when the damage starts, because you've done it too quickly and too early, if that is the case, then you get blamed for it as well. You you pointed that out this morning and I went and read it and it was a it was very well stated. And you can almost see that the, uh, folks playing chess by going, you know how we're gonna do this? We're gonna do this with corporate profits. Look how much money right. they're making. Because when costs rise and you know, I'm using uh I'm using uh LIFO accounting and I stop LIFOing, i.e drilling Good and point. doing that guess what my cost base go way down i'm gonna have huge net income i i, I used to say about <laughs> right in 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 my corporate life and in my banking life or research life that esg and sustainability and the whole conversation around doing better and proving it was there were two two segments or two dimensions to that one is playing the game. And I don't mean that cynically or you have to, it's yeah. compliance, it's reporting, it's marketing, it's doing, it's public relations, it's doing all the things you need to do, but you need to be able to prove that those things are, are truths in, in your policies and your behavior. <clears throat> but for an industry that is rife with, I think some of the premier technical talent in the world across a number of natural mm -hmm. sciences and engineering, the ability to actually solve the problem. So it's the solving the problem side versus playing the game. The industry is very well equipped and I think it's demonstrating that it's <clears throat> finally and proactively and aggressively within practical and physical limits, certainly willing to take that on. Yeah, the OGDC pact mm -hmm. is some would argue late in terms of flaring and, and fugitive methane emissions. And I think we've been pretty consistent that that's something the industry should be held to account. Well, I thought, I thought cop, the cop chairman, uh, the Sultan said, this is actually one of the things I took away. He's, he's, he was talking back to the media, please help me show me the roadmap for a phase out of fossil fuel that will allow for sustainable socioeconomic development, unless you want to take the world back into caves. Yeah, he he threw out the caves. Line. I mean, let's be honest here. Like, and we're seeing the the middle class to lower class, who actually don't have a real voice, but the middle class are starting to push back. Yeah. You're seeing this. So let me close it with this, because then I'm gonna have to do something that's probably gonna make me throw up a little bit in my mouth. Uh -oh. But um, close it close it with this on this front. I have always been. You've heard me say this on the podcast a lot. Three ways to change people's mind ask them questions, make them laugh, or scare them. I, you got to play on the emotional okay. side. As a, and the, the single worst way, according to the psychological research, is facts, reasons, and argument. Um, 
I have always been, let's make people laugh. Let's ask questions. Let's be positive and all that. I've gotten to the point where I'm really close that we, we as an industry need to start scaring people. Let's put out how many people will die based on higher, uh, higher costs of energy. And let's start quantifying legislation mm. and how much more expensive it's going to make things. And let's start doing death tolls on that. Because I'm almost getting there. I don't want to get there. That's not my personality. But I'm close. I'm very, very close. Well, it's already started on the other side of the debate, although there's not a lot of specifics other than millions. Yeah, everybody's going to die. The world's going to end. Well, yeah, millions have already. So, you know, I, I think... I think people who would die in a severe winter because they either can't afford it and in maybe some extremes in some governments and societies that actually gets cut off. Uh, we don't do that by and large here in the U S but physical shortages that prolong enough the, to take out more, more vulnerable right parts of the population. Those are going to be real immediate yeah. here and now Fer numbers fertilizer etc going down the i don't think people business. especially in i mean in the modern world we've got a lot of the countries that they're almost irrelevant from this perspective because all they're trying to do is put food on the table so like most of india a lot of china but when you think about the modernized world um no one cares they're a tiktok generation they they watch stuff on tiktok and laugh it's it's once they can't afford food it's one they can't fill up gas tank when they lose their job they have no health care when they need it that's when things get serious and we're about we could get there in europe this 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 winter we could get there yeah no definitely yeah okay. and there there was you know there was anticipation that we were going to run into that severity of crisis in europe last year and we talked about it dodge, it happened dodge, dodge, dodge the bullet 1880 or the bullet on weather the weather casino <laughs> yeah worked out Keep using I like it. Yep. Bring it back. All right. This is going to make me throw up a little bit in my mouth. Congratulations to the Texas Longhorns for making the college football playoffs. I mean, let's, let's talk about CFP here. It's Hey, listen, so, man. I Do we deserve to be there? I, I could give you an argument of why, but there's a lot of teams that actually deserve to be there that aren't going to be there. So, you know, I humbly am proud of the Horns. I think – this makes me throw up my mouth because I was a doubter, but I think Coach Sark has built a great program over in, in Austin. He's he's a kind of a humble leader in many ways. Um, I'm glad they're there. So, and I will I will say this: your athletic director, Chris Del Conte, first athletic director job was at Rice University. Yeah, so I, big, I know you're. <laughs> I was I, waiting I, for that. I'm a Should big Chris Del Conte fan. So uh, clearly, Michigan <clears throat> deserves to be there. Clearly, Washington deserves to be there. I'll actually say this. You guys were number three on my list, too. You you deserve to be there. I mean, your one loss is a rivalry game. After the games played out on Saturday, and especially after the Florida State-Louisville game, which was tough to watch. Abysmal. It was just tough to watch. But they did finish the season 13-0, and and recognizing that the committee had an out with the guidelines that actually say player availability and predicting what that means for – competitiveness in the playoff and on the heels of TCU getting shellacked in the championship, it felt like that, that, that card was going to be played and that's what happened. I, I didn't think Georgia would drop five spots. 
Yeah, but which I mean, is if they took one person from the SEC, they had to honor. Well, if they, they to took head. Alabama, they had to take Texas because they had yeah. to have that. Yeah, pretty and then much. They had to have taken Georgia, and they couldn't do that with Michigan. It's 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 uh it's it's a pretty illuminating and humorous uh, look back or throwback to Mike Leach's rant. I think from 2017. Yeah, still that, Washington that's State, still circulating. Twitter. Talking about the committee and. You know, it's just a bunch of fans and, you know, it's not really a, a playoff. It's an invitational. And and that's it's true. You know, that's so the, ma- so the Masters, but, you know, my, Green my Jacket only, changes your life. My so. only, I guess, pondering was since the Pac-12 is going away, you, you could have bounced Washington out and – you know the Pac-12 doesn't exist anymore after this year, so what does it matter? You could have. Now, I think Texas Washington is on deserved, the same. Washington deserved to be there. Same argument. Yeah. Well, deserving or best team, right? Yeah. So, um, it, it's you know, as an Aggie, it's really. Yeah, I know. There's a few unwritten rice out. The there's a few unwritten rules. You can't lose late in the season. That's why Georgia's out. Yeah, it's unfortunate, but it's always I, been that way. You lose late in the season, you're when you're yeah, you but, split the but games, the committee the second guy that won the committee went. the committee yeah. watched all of those games and that one key non reviewed call at the end of the first half on fourth and four. I, I think on review, it's going to be very tough. We all to have stand those calls as a completion. Yeah, we all have those calls, no question. But but the mere fact that. And I don't know how the process works in game and in college football on that type of of stoppage for review, but it was in retrospect, it was kind of odd to me because I think they'd reviewed a play before mm-hmm. that was much less worthy, I guess, of of being reviewed. I don't remember exactly what that was, but yeah. <clears throat> so I got oh I got two things just saying this. One, the competitiveness of the game and the injuries. I don't buy that because I think it's impressive if you win with backups, but it is a criteria laid out like like you said. I will say this. I don't think any of those three teams, Michigan, Washington, or Texas, would score more than 14 points on that Florida State defense. That Florida State defense is real, and if you're going to score 14 points, it's always going to be a coin flip whether you win or not. Because It's a fair statement. You know, I, I, so, I think so, undef- they're so undefeated. I, they won their conference. I think they should be in. But, that, hey. As someone who is somewhat – I'm glad they're not. I don't know how to put this. I had two daughters graduate from Clemson, so I, I, I guess I'm a little bit genetically anti-FSU, although I, I do think they got, they got absolutely screwed. Um I went back and looked at the statistics from the Florida State at Clemson game in September. And Clemson dominated and outplayed in every category, but the most important one, and if you don't remember and there's no reason you should, Dabo had, in an emergency or a desperate situation, brought a retired kicker grad student out of retirement and with 145 left in regulation, tie ball game, he missed a 30-yard chip shot. The game went into overtime, Florida State won. But if you look at <clears throat> at the entire box score in team-by-team comparison, um, that was not a, I don't know, we get into the, you know, how, how good or bad are your wins and losses right. as we start to go through the subjective yeah. evaluation. Alabama, fourth and it just, just kind of a G, yeah. Just kind of a G whiz. I do think a 13-0 and 0 power five, Especially ACC, 
getting bounced out when they ran the table is that's a tough precedent. So two two final things. Happy to give credit where credit's due or remain anonymous. A point was brought up to me by a very smart person this morning. ESPN's going to have a lot of influence here. ESPN is owned by Disney. Who has Disney been fighting with all year? Florida. Florida. So the state of Florida getting screwed. Is there something having to do with that? Coincidence? The the tinfoil hat. That's a great tinfoil hat. The tinfoil hat I've been wearing the last two years, three years. I love that introduction. And we're going to go. I'm happy to give credit where credit's due. If uh, in in some circles, a bit of a controversial mascot. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. by the way, and by the way, the governor did comment on Florida State not making it. Yeah. So there might be more truth to that than fiction. But here's the final close on this. If Mike Pence will just do the right thing right now, <laughs> Florida State can come in. <laughs> well, there there were a number of voices calling for step in and we'll we'll have an emergency one game play in. Yeah. Do the right thing. Heck I mean, yeah. who watches the December seventeenth bowl? No one. Yeah, let's go. Let's I, go. I, look, I, I think the twelve. I think the twelve game. I could live with setup, Georgia coming in it, too. It, let's it, go six. It it uh, elevates the value of the pre New Year's weekend bowls by a lot because there's much at stake. I mean, how many times have you turned on like the Gator Bowl and seen the entire upper deck completely empty all the time? on some random non-holiday between Christmas and New Year's. Yeah. L- let me tell you just from the inside of a of um, a Texas fan, we're schizophrenic. So a varsity athlete I'm on a thread with, the night before the announcement, after we won, the comment came across, we're the best team in college football. Same guy next morning says, we're not going to make it. We're terrible. I'm like, <laughs> that's Texas. Thank you. I'm glad we're in. Um, good, uh, good feedback. And, and, and from the perspective of the less fortunate on the outside looking in, the number of entrants to the transfer portal from AM's best ever recruiting class in 2022 has now reached eight. Well, let me tell you, as a Texas fan, I would love to see AM become, excuse me, I'd love to see AM become great again. It would be great for the SEC and especially for this side of the SEC. And I can't find the uh, the stat right now, and I should have had it pulled up. But uh, you know, Rice only lost. The, how how bad did Rice lose to uh, Texas? Not as bad as Oklahoma State, and ticked down on <laughs> a number of y'all's wins. So we're playing, you know, and we're, and we're going to a bowl. And they don't play Texas because it's easy. Texas because it's hard. That's right. That's such a great line. All right, everybody. If oh, you we got to let Chuck go throw up. Yeah, exactly. It's still in my mouth a little bit. As I used to tell my uh, ex-brother-in-law who had oh. extolled the virtues. Let's, of, let's let's go ahead and do a round, a real quick round of predictions since I think you're... Oh, who wins? Yeah. Who's the national champion? Well, semifinals and, and finals. Um, I'm going to go... I'm going to go Michigan goes all the way. And then um, I am going to go. I'm going to go Alabama over Washington. No, Texas plays Washington. Alabama yeah. plays oh, Washington. Oh, I got it backwards. Okay, so so Texas beats Washington, and Michigan beats Alabama. Michigan beats Texas. 
I'm going to say that uh, Texas is going to cover Washington. We're going to beat them. I think Bama's going to actually beat Michigan. I think that they're they're confident they're going to be ready. The head-to-head matchup, Texas versus Bama in Houston. I'll be drinking St. Arnold's, by the way. There you go. I think it's going to be come down to the last play, and I can't tell you who's kicking that field goal or running that touchdown. One thing that I've always believed as I've watched the last 10 years of the CFP and the SEC is that, uh, particularly as it relates to Alabama, LSU, and Georgia, is that next-level speed on both sides of the ball ends up really showing up in terms of the contrast between the top of the SEC and the other conferences, particularly the Big Ten. <clears throat> at least, at least we've had data points that have have shown that. That's my observation. May have nothing to do with anything. And the the other thing that happens too that I have to give the SEC credit for is coaching actually shows up when you have a month off, and you can't give you can't give a, a month to an SEC coach. I, They're just that much better. So, and you got Harbaugh sitting on the sidelines. So that's so I am going with the emotion. Everybody hates us at Michigan to overcome the fact that Harbaugh is not allowed to coach. My picks, Texas beat Washington pretty decisively. Okay. And I think, pick your adjective for Alabama over Michigan. And then I think, once again, a Saban protege is left wanting Ooh, after yeah. facing the master yeah. in Houston. <sighs> oh, wow. Right. You heard it here. But Texas, Texas showed me something in terms of that speed and power, despite the fact that the you know the naysayers were saying Oklahoma State's a different you know a different level. I, I just think the um, kind of the athleticism. Did you see and the power. how Sark brought the play, Gundy type plays against Gundy? I was I was so impressed by. We did some trick plays, which is usually up Oklahoma State's sleeve. So that was pretty fun to watch. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right, everybody, if you enjoyed the podcast, please share it with a friend. Hopefully, I, I, we got flagged three times on a false start trying to end the show. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Whatever. And uh, hopefully, we'll get Colin back. The uh, I, I'm, I'm like struggling. For he's hiding. He's for actually going to, he's trying right? to get taller. So he's, that's he's painful. Stretching. He's stretching. He's, we got him on the rack out back. Take care.